It is a pleasure to be with you all again. As Larry said, my name is Ryan Deal, and I serve as a pastor over at Center Grove Presbyterian Church. Our sermon text for this afternoon, I'm not used to saying that, but this afternoon is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Uh, this passage of Scripture, it concludes Paul's opening words to Timothy just before entering into the main body of the epistle. And it takes us back to the charge that Paul gave to Timothy in verses 3 and 5 of chapter 1. And the charge was simple, to tell certain persons in Ephesus, presumably elders in the church, to not teach anything other than what is true biblical doctrine. As pastors, both Paul and Timothy were entrusted to guard, protect, and teach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that was so easily summarized back in verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom Paul is the foremost. Well, all of us, like Paul, are unworthy sinners, aren't we? But we, with an, abun but with an abundance of mercy, God has redeemed us. He's redeemed his people in Christ, and our response to that is simple. As Paul reflects on the gospel in prior texts, he bursts into doxological praise of who God is. He is the only one worthy of such honor and glory. And we need to keep this in mind as we study our text today because our text is replete with things to do. And our strength to do these things can only come through meditating on the Lord and on his attributes. So keep in mind that this letter was written from one pastor to another pastor. So this text is teaching pastors and elders what to do in the face of opposition. But as we um, talked about, this letter ends with the plural you. It ends saying grace be to y'all. So this letter, yes, was written to Timothy, a fellow elder, a fellow pastor, but it was written for all of us in the modern day. So let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Most Holy Father, you are good and you are holy. Your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces us as it did in Acts chapter 2, Lord, I pray that it would cut us to the heart, it would convict us, it would encourage us, it would transform your people, Lord. We pray that in the mighty name of Christ our Lord, for he is the word made flesh. In his name we pray, amen. In 1979, um, a film came out called Rocky, as many of you may know. A nobody boxer named Rocky Balboa gets the rare opportunity to fight the world heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. Yet no matter the outcome, Rocky's attitude is one to commend. In one scene, Rocky is clearly downcast. He arrives at his apartment and sits uh, next to his lover on the bed, and he expresses that he just can't do it. He can't beat Apollo. 
he continues and says this. It don't matter if I lose. don't matter if he opens my head. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. If I go them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know then I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Now, there's not an exact one-to-one correlation between this and our text today. (laughs) As a young pastor, Timothy is not trying to prove himself as not an ordinary bum from the Ephesian neighborhood. However, there is an aspect to Rocky's attitude that parallels Paul's goal in equipping Timothy. Rocky said, it don't matter if I lose, the only thing I want to do is go the distance. And that's the heart of our text today. Paul's equipping Timothy with the essentials to have an effective ministry and a faithful walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants Timothy to go the distance. And in doing that, he gives him four essential weapons to fight the good fight or to wage the good warfare. And just as Rocky was the underdog and many did not believe in him to go to the distance with Apollo, Timothy was the young pastor who could only endure if he maintained purity in both his life and his doctrine. He was called to faithfully serve in the midst of fellow leaders who were clearly abandoning the faith. Now, while this is true in Timothy's ministry, it is also true for all of us in our everyday lives. We, too, are called to fight the battle well. As Jesus makes clear, it is the straight and narrow path. It is not an easy path. It will be full of pain and difficulty, but it is the path of true life. It is the path of true human flourishing. And this is why we will summarize our text this way, that we are charged to fight until the end in the midst of those who have abandoned the faith. And we'll hash out this statement as we ask the question, how must we fight the good fight? First, we must remember our calling. We must remember our calling. We see this in the second half of verse 18. The text says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, to our point at hand, it's not immediately clear how Paul is referring to Timothy's calling. We may even read this and ask, whenever was there a prophecy made about Timothy in the New or the Old Testaments? And that would be a good question. Because to our knowledge, there was never a prophecy in the New or Old Testaments made about Timothy. What then is Paul talking about? Well, let's skip ahead to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And for context, we'll read verses 11 through 16 with a special focus on verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that 
all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So it seems like the prophecies made about Timothy were not so much God sending a prophet and predicting something about Timothy hundreds or even thousands of years before he was born. The prophecies made about Timothy were more referring to the confirmation of Timothy's calling. So upon Timothy's ordination as a elder, as a pastor, the elders of the church, they laid their hands on Timothy. They prayed for him. This tangible image gave the people a glimpse of what was happening in the spiritual realm. The prophecy was essentially the elders praying over him, showing that the Holy Spirit was the one confirming Timothy's calling and setting Timothy apart for gospel ministry. Some of what your elders in this church were part of my ordination service back in 2020. So in order to fight the good fight, this is the first thing that Timothy needs to recall. He needs to remember that he does not labor in the strength of his own gifts or his own charisma, does he? Rather, he labors because the Lord has called him and set him apart for this task. He labors in the strength of the omnipotent Spirit of God. Likewise, for all of us, we must remember our calling. This is not true just for pastors and elders in the church. We all must remember our calling. Everyone here may not be called into ordained ministry, yet no matter your occupation or your stage in life, we all have been called into gospel ministry as Christians. And in the providence of God, all those who follow Christ, at some point, they were called. Because at some point, the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and drove you towards repentance. It was not our choice to follow Jesus, was it? We did not call ourselves because we were all, by nature, children of wrath, dead in our sin, helpless to do anything about it. But in his timing, the Holy Spirit called us. He regenerated our hearts. He gave us the gift of faith that enabled us to turn from our sin towards living for the Lord and his law. And at that moment, every single one of us in this room were called into gospel ministry. So what does that look like to live out your calling in gospel ministry. Well, it means that we're called to serve one another in the local church, to bear one another's burdens, to be a light and an ambassador for Christ in our communities and in our neighborhoods, to share the gospel with those whom God puts in our path. This is the first thing we must do in order to fight the good fight. We must remember our calling. We must remember that God has commissioned us to fight in His strength, and not our own gifts, and not our own abilities. So how else must we fight the good fight? Second, we see that we must cling to faith. We must cling to faith. We see this in the first half of verse 19. The text says that by 
these, that's these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. So faith is, is the second weapon given to equip Timothy to fight the good fight. Now, since the Greek lacks the definite article here, this seems to refer to the act of faith. Not the content of faith, but the act of faith. The act of trust, the posture of trust in God and His promises. As Hebrews 11 makes clear, faith is being assured of all that we hope for in Christ's return. Faith is being convicted of the truth, even if it's unseen. In other words, faith is the posture of trust in the promises of God. And all that God has promised is found in His Word, isn't it? Paul wants Timothy to have nothing to do with teaching that is not found in the Holy Scriptures. Not doctrine that's mythical and speculative that focuses on uh, picking random names from genealogical lists and making stories up about them. If you read chapter, the, the first part of chapter 1, you see that that's what these false teachers were doing. They're basing doctrine off of myth and made-up stories. He wants Timothy to have faith in sound doctrine that's found in the Scriptures alone. And as Paul says elsewhere, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, the Scriptures are all that we need to live a godly and upright life. They are the best weapon that we have to defend the faith. In the midst of opposition, as Hebrews 4.12 makes clear, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, Timothy must not trust in his own gifts or his own charisma or his own abilities. Timothy must cling to faith. Specifically, faith in the content of the Scriptures. But within the first half of verse 19, we see a third weapon that God has given us to fight the good fight. The text again says that by these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Timothy must not only have a proper knowledge of the faith, right? At some point, sound teaching will lead to appropriate conduct. If the content of the Scriptures truly convicts his heart, external behavior will prove whether Timothy really understands the faith or not. Timothy must lead by example. He, he must first be convicted over the scripture he teaches before he delivers it to the people. To do otherwise would to violate his conscience. It would be a bad conscience, right? His life and his doctrine would not align. As John Calvin summarizes for us, our equipment is, as I have said, faith and a good conscience, which means sound doctrine and not only readiness to serve God, but Genuine uprightness and sincerity, faith and a good conscience are qualities which all believers should have, 
But the example must first be set by those who preach the gospel. They must sound the trumpet. You know, I hope every elder and deacon in this room feels the weight of that responsibility. Men, we are called to a noble task. We must be above reproach. We must abstain from the appearance of any evil. And the convicting reality is that in all of the qualifications that we see in 1 Timothy 3, none of them are about our knowledge of doctrinal truths. None of them are that way. Now, we know that to be important because an elder must be able to teach. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But the emphasis is more on the character of the man. So are we above reproach in both our private and our public lives? Do we lead our family well so that we can lead the church family well? And more than anything else, as Paul says to Timothy in that text, do unbelievers in our community and workplaces think well of us? It doesn't matter what they think about your religious beliefs. They most likely think you're, gonna, you're foolish, right? But do they respect and appreciate you simply because you exude the fruit of the Spirit, even if they could put it in those words or not? Because your character is something to admire. It is a lot to think about clinging to faith and a good conscience in our own efforts, and that is why we need to look uh, to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus perfectly displays the qualities of faith and a good conscience, doesn't he? Even with blood sweating down his face, Jesus clung to faith. He trusted in the promises of his heavenly Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even as his murderers were hurling insults at him, And gambling over his clothes, Jesus had a good conscience. On the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Brothers, officers in this room, let us embody our Savior as we lead by example before the flock that we've been called to serve. But of course, this reality is true for all of us here, isn't it? It can be tempting to think, since such qualifications are for church officers, that the sheep can be less serious about clinging to faith and a good conscience. But we shouldn't be sinning and sinning that grace may abound, right? Church officers are just like the rest of us. Yes, new creations in Christ, but still those who struggle with remaining sin. We all need to take serious the call to a faith and good conscience. It really is what needs and will be continually emphasized over and over and over again if you read through all the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. So do our faith and our conscience agree? Are all of us keeping a close watch on both our life and our doctrine? You know, I wish I heard this clearly in my second year of Bible college. I was a Christian for only a few years, And I was growing a lot in my knowledge of truth. Some professors were not reformed, and I was becoming more reformed. 
So I did a lot of extra study outside of my coursework, but I didn't really handle the opposition well. My knowledge of Scripture was rapidly increasing. I was, I was more confident. I had faith in the content of God's Word, yet my character was far behind. You could say that my faith and my conscience did not agree. I was concerned about winning a debate with my fellow classmate more than I cared about them as an individual, as someone made in God's image. And I remember coming to the realization that this was true about myself. I knew things had to change. And part of how the Lord brought resolution to that was actually bringing me to Covenant Seminary because I knew they were a seminary that cared about both these weapons in this text. They wanted pastors to be equipped with the skills and resources to be a scholar of God's word, but they also desired godly character out of their students. Now, as much as seminary helped me in this area, I still struggle with utilizing these two weapons. I still lean more towards obtaining knowledge of the scriptures, and that's not bad, but I need to continually be aware of my need, again, for both a faith and a good conscience. So my encouragement is the same for us all here. Know what you naturally lean towards. Do you lean more towards doctrine or practice? And then seek to make that the other is not far behind. Because we need conduct as the church that's in accord with the content of our faith. But there is one more weapon uh, that the Lord gives us so that we can fight the good fight. It's towards the end of our text. Fourth, we must purge the evil from among us. And we see this in the second half of verse 19 through the end of our text, where it says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, as you can imagine, this is the most difficult part of this text, isn't it? There are some who have clearly not remembered their calling. They clearly not have clung to faith and a good conscience. Paul says that they made shipwreck of their faith. Now, I suspect there are lay people Uh, who would have been deceived into the false teaching going on in Ephesus. But in verse 20, when Paul names two names of men in the church, we can assume, presumably, that Hymenaeus and Alexander were elders in the church. They were leaders of the church. Now, we don't know much about these men, but there are some internal clues within the pastoral epistles itself. Alexander was a very popular name in the first century, but Paul doesn't And Paul does mention an Alexander in 2 Timothy 4.14. This man was a coppersmith who did a lot of harm to Paul in some way. He tells Timothy to be aware of him because he firmly opposes the message of the gospel. Now, with regard to Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy 2, he's listed with another man named Philetus as someone who, quote, has swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, that's an interesting comment. Uh, This is not talking about Jesus' resurrection. What Hymenaeus and Philetus deny is the final resurrection. 
It's talking about that day when our Lord Jesus returns with his followers who have passed already from this earth. And we ourselves who are still alive will experience our own resurrection. Believers will experience the fullness of what God has intended for humanity. So to say that the resurrection has already happened is to view the final resurrection merely as something spiritual. It's a heresy that many modern end-time fanatics have fallen into. After predicting the world would end in 1994, Harold Camping, sadly a Presbyterian minister formerly, predicted it once more in May 2011. He claimed that it did happen that time, but it was just a spiritual resurrection. It was a spiritual judgment day. In his words, the physical resurrection would happen five months later in October 2011. Yes, he did apologize to his listeners a few years later, but nevertheless, he serves as a perfect example of a modern-day Hymenaeus and Philetus. So it was not just the doctrine that shipwrecked and upset the faith of some, right? Doctrine matters because it affects how we live our lives. Followers of this sort of teaching would have often had the mindset of licentiousness. In other words... You know, since you are resurrected now, do, do whatever you want. Indulge in your fleshly desires. Sin and sin so that grace may abound. Doctrine affects how we live our lives. So whether these are the same Hymenaeus and Alexander, as we see in these two references, it is clearly that both of them, their life and their doctrine, are dangerous. And they're dangerous for the Ephesian believers. And as the shepherd of the Ephesian church, Paul is telling Timothy to be aware of this. So what has Paul done about it already? Yes, he wants Timothy to charge them not to teach anything other than true biblical doctrine. But he goes further even to the point of making a statement that makes some of us uncomfortable. In verse 20, he says that he already handed him over to Satan. Now, why would Paul do such a thing? Why would Paul hand a man over to Satan, the enemy? The text says so that they learn not to blaspheme, right? And this is difficult to take in because in our finite understanding of things, we wonder how that would do any good. What about Showing love. What about just loving them? What about showing them grace? Well, the only other time we see this phrase in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 5. And there's a heinous sin that is being tolerated in the Corinthian church. A man is sleeping with his stepmother. And this is an action that Paul says is not even tolerated amongst the pagan Gentiles. And this is how Paul responds to the situation. This is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So in both cases, there's a command for a negative action that ends, Lord willing, in a positive instruction. 
The purpose of such discipline is not punishment. It is the elders of the church caring for the souls of their sheep. If someone sins in a grievous manner and after much communication with them, graciously working through their issues, if they still are persistent in that sin and they refuse to acknowledge their wrong and they refuse to repent, they're like that man in Numbers 15 who had a high hand. It was like a super intentional sin. It was his ultimate act of rebellion against the Lord. There's only one option for that kind of person, to be handed over to Satan. In other words, excommunication. Cutting them off from the sacrament of communion. Cutting them off from fellowship. Cutting them off from the benefits of church membership. Again, this seems harsh to us. But it's God's solution for the persistent and unrepentant sinner. You can imagine if you were cut off from all of those things that life would be difficult. In fact, it would be quite miserable. You might even come to your senses and realize the harm that you've done. While the church may not be in fellowship with them any longer, their responsibility would still be to pray for them hoping that their eyes would open, hoping that handing them over to Satan will effectively humble them. Why? Again, so they may learn not to blaspheme and that their soul would be saved, restoring them to church membership once again. That's always the goal of church discipline. Robert Yarborough helpfully summarizes verse 20 by saying this, In grave cases of ethical or doctrinal lapse, Satan was viewed as God's agent in judicial administration. Whereas congregations would normally have prayed for one another, there were evidently cases where petition would shift from divine protection to divine discipline, with Satan as God's agent. And then he summarizes it this way and says, sometimes harsh measures are required to wake people up. Fellow elders, this is not the fun part (laughs) about shepherding and fulfilling our office as an elder. If we get pleasure from ruling with a heavy hand in this way, we should reevaluate why we serve on session. Such decisions must be made with grief and with tears and on our knees in prayer. But in the moment of grave sin... It is our only course of action. Ultimately, trusting in the Lord and His sovereign control over the situation that presents itself. And for the rest of us, this is also an urgent matter. Uh, Not to point to the evil out there in other people, right? But first to address and deal with the issue of evil in our own hearts. In order to purge the evil from among us, we must first address the log that's in our own eye. When we are aware that we have sinned, we must be quick to repent. Don't let our sin linger. Don't let it go unaddressed. Be quick to put it to death so that we can live how God has intended us to live as his children. 
Friends, these are the weapons that God has given us to fight the good fight. First, we must remember our calling. It has its origin in God's strength and not our own gifts and not our own abilities. Second, we must cling to faith and a good conscience. Keep a close watch on both our doctrine and our lives and our conduct. Make sure that they're aligned and that they agree with one another. Lastly, we must purge the evil from among us. Yes, purge grave sin, which does Christ's bride extreme harm, but also purge the evil with their own hearts day by day. That's what sanctification is, right? It's the mortification of our sin, dying to our sin and living unto righteousness. This is how we can fight the good fight in the midst of those who have abandoned the faith. As Colossians 1, 10 states, and I leave you with these words, let us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, you are the only God, the only true sovereign. We love you. We adore you, and we continue to worship you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us how to fight the good fight. You haven't left us to ourselves, but you've given us the tools and the weapons to fight, for the fight is one of a spiritual nature, not of violence, not even of passivity. Lord, I ask and pray that all of us here at Providence Presbyterian Church would seek to die to our sin and live unto righteousness, that we may not sin in sin so that grace may abound, but we may heed to your call uh, to fight the good fight, to be patient and endure until the end. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we lift high and that we pray these things. Amen.